if you would, one more time, I know you're getting a lot of standing up and standing down, but would you stand with me one more time? We're going to read um, the word of God together. If you're new to church, this is something that we practice, again, an old tradition of giving kind of reverence to the Holy uh, Scriptures, this book that we go to, um, to understand what it looks like to follow God. So Philippians 2, 14 to 16 reads, do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure. Children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. We're going through a series. Uh, we've been going, uh, we've been in the book of Philippians since the beginning of the year. Uh, and during the season of Lent, uh, if you go back one slide here, this is, um, we, we timed it to land right in Philippians 2 as the season of Lent began. And Lent, again, is a season of just deep reflection, of recognizing our sin. It's, a, it's something in the church calendar that's really helpful for us to zero in on the state of our own heart. Uh, and so we simply called it the way of the cross. Philippians 2 deals a lot with humility what it means to just die to yourself in really intentional ways. So we've talked uh, a bit about humility. Uh, we've talked about what it means to, to follow Jesus and the way in which he loves his enemies, the way in which he, he dies for the other, the way in which he dies to his own needs and his own concerns for the sake of the other, that this is the path, the way of the cross that we're called to follow. Uh, and today we're beginning to sort of rise out of Philippians 2 uh, and what Paul does here is one of the most co just cool things that you see him do, which is talk to a church, this church that we've been dealing with and learning about the context, this church in the city called Philippi, a colony of Rome. And he begins to attach the ancient uh, Jewish story, which is what, if you're new to the scriptures, the whole Old Testament is about these first people, the Israelites, who were called to be a blessing to the world uh, and we see the ways that they fall short and, and miss the boat and the ways that they, they and sometimes are desiring to do the way of God and other times being co-opted. Um, they were called to be a blessing uh, to all creation. And then we see Jesus as like the climax of their story. And so what Paul does is writing to a church in Philippi, talking to them about what it means to live in modern day Rome, modern day for them, and then it brings it back to what is a central story in the Jewish canon, which is the Exodus story. How many of you have ever seen like Ten Commandments movie? Any of you? Who is it? Charlton Heston, right? Yeah, you know they're making a new one? And the dude, um, I forgot his name, Christian, uh, Christian Bale. I was to say Christian Slater. No, Christian, Christian Slater as Moses. Yeah. <laughs> that was my Christian Slater impression. Yeah. Um, Christian Bale is going to be Moses. So Batman is going to be Moses in the new Ten Commandments movie. That's so good, right? Who better to be Moses than Batman? Like Russell Crowe as Noah. Like, I'm just waiting to who they're going to cast like Nicolas Cage as somebody. You know, or like The Rock. Like who, The Rock will be Samson. Like I'm, line, I'm lining up the next, the next couple movies. Um... <laughs> The rock. Nicolas Cage. Can I, can I share you a really funny story? Any, how many of you are familiar with Nicolas Cage? Right, far too many of you. 
So uh, some of you may know the sort of ironic humor that surrounds Nicolas Cage. It just, just sort of, he kind of plays the same role every time. You know, he has the same sort of mannerisms. Every character he plays is always like, whoa. Um, that's my Nicolas Cage impression. <laughs> I'm really good at impressions, clearly. Uh, Anyway, when we first moved into this building, right, so most of Nicolas Cage's movies, or so many of them are, you know, the national treasure kind of thing, right? Like, like exploring old maps and digging up old things. I feel like he's in a whole slew of movies like that. So we first move in here, and if you notice, right up here, do you see the eye? Any of you ever noticed that? So we thought it was like the all-seeing eye, you know, like Illuminati, like, you know, Jay-Z's up there with all the mobsters. Like, I don't know. We saw that eye and we were just like, we first, we found out that it's actually the eye of God and it's different symbolism, even though it looks strikingly similar to the Illuminati. And so all of these stories, when we first moved in, this is only like a year ago or a little less than a year ago, we started talking about how like Nicolas Cage lives upstairs, you know, and like it was the whole hunt to like, we're going to find maps, we're going to lead the way to actually look for Nicolas Cage. And um, the story just didn't go anywhere from here. It just was funny to me. Nicolas Cage. That's it. That's all I got. Just so we can trace that tangent, uh, Moses, Exodus Story, Charlton Heston, Christian Bale, Batman, other movies, Nicolas Cage. Thank you. All right, we can cut this out of the sermon recording. Uh, So Paul is referencing this Exodus story in this chapter. Direct references. In fact, this section of scripture is loaded up with like tags. So if you've ever, uh, for those of you familiar with hip-hop, hip-hop is always self-referential. So you're rhyming about one thing, but you're borrowing a line from that song that came in. It was like a 1984 classic like Run DMC song or a Grandmaster Flash song. Or you're, you're constantly paying... Um, sort of honor to who's come before you as you're making something new. And a lot of times you're using it to reference a story. It's actually strikingly similar. Paul is talking to a group of people who would know all sorts of stories. They grew up, and this is a mixed group of people, mind you. He's speaking as, or sorry, as this letter is read, they wouldn't have all had copies of the letter. So they're sitting in a church in Rome, and Paul begins to, or um, Whoever is reading the letter from Paul begins to read to the church. So you have some folks who really know the Jewish story, other folks who don't know it very well at all. And so uh, people, you know, you, you can kind of imagine or sort of wink, wink, nudge, like, do you, realize, do you realize what he's referencing here? Do you realize what's happening here? So I want to first just kind of go through and exegete just the opening parts of this. So the Greek, for the first word that we come across, do everything without grumbling, do everything without grumbling. The word here is gongismos. It's a sweet word. Sounds like some sort of, I don't know, growth that you have on your foot. Gongismos. And I love this word because of the first part of it, gong. This is actually a really great way to talk about do everything without grumbling. Like I imagine, I, don't, I didn't actually have time to you know, find a gong. But it's sort of like, like you're stuck in traffic and you're listening to somebody like complain about the construction, right? And they're just like, oh gosh, I'm going to be late. And like all you're really hearing if you're sitting there listening to someone who's like a serious like grumbler, complainer, is just like, like, right? If you're a teacher, 
and, and a student just kind of comes up to you and begins to, like, complain about the fact that you're giving them, you know, too much homework and forcing them to work just a little bit. You know, maybe you have to take the iPad like, out of your head, ears for a moment. And they're just, like, complaining and whining. And all you're, that's all you're hearing is just gr- grumbling. It's gongismos. It's actually a really, really appropriate um, <laughs> prefix to this word. This picture of just noise. Like, don't make noise. And, and the second word here is the word uh, arguing, uh, which a really phenomenal definition in the Greek that I found was reasoning that has ulterior or malicious desires. So good, right? We know the difference between trying to like, this isn't arguing like constructive, like we're working out a problem, we're, we're debating to figure out the truth, you know, we're wrestling. This is arguing like reasoning that has ulterior or malicious desires. Like you're just starting to, you're trying to start a fight. You're just arguing or you're just like making noise, gongismos. We see these two everywhere, right? I don't almost need to preach anymore on this part of the section. Just don't do this. Don't grumble. Don't make noise. Don't argue for the sake of arguing. We see this at work and sports. I could give examples. You could give better ones. And so Paul says this, though, not so much as a deep correction, as we're going to see. He actually says this as something that was going to cause you to stand out. And it's something it appears that the Philippian church actually might be doing very well. But for us, when we read this, it's hard to not complain. Have you ever heard the term first world problems? Right? Yeah. We struggle with this. Sometimes when you have a lot, when you've been blessed with a lot, when you have access to a lot, it's actually easier to grumble and argue. Strangely. Because there's more stuff in the way. We'll get to that in a minute. So, to, uh, to reference what I was talking about before, Paul is referencing a classic Jewish story. The story of the Exodus. So a quick recap if you're not familiar. The story of the Exodus are God's people. The Bible calls them these Jews who are stuck in slavery in Egypt. Their worth comes from the amount of bricks that they produce. They are, they are enslaved in every way to Pharaoh. And God reaches out his hand and in grace and mercy rescues them from slavery. But we're told in Deuteronomy, which is the book that we read about this account, that they grumbled and complained They spent a lot of time in the wilderness, post-slavery. So God delivers them from slavery, and they're wandering through the wilderness, and quickly their posture goes from, great, we're not slaves anymore, sort of a big deal, to shift to uh, complaining about the food, grumbling about how long they're wandering in the wilderness. Uh, You have one account where somebody speaks up and says, why did you bring us out here? Did you bring us out here to die? They don't, they don't understand what's happened. And they very, very quickly, the best way to describe the Exodus story is they've lost the plot. They've, just, they've lost the sense of what's actually happened. They are unbelievable forget, unbelievably forgetful. So Paul, in referencing this story, and literally just taking pieces of Deuteronomy and reframing it and dropping it down here in Philippians, is saying, look, there's a larger story You need to remember the gift of grace. You need to have a bit of perspective. And if you don't understand that you are a part of something bigger, if you have this really narrow view of everything as just your immediate gratification, you're going to be be grumbling and making noise and arguing, and the state of your heart is not going to be a healthy one. 
We grumble when we forget to remember that there is a larger story. Two, we grumble when we think that we need more. This was such the case with the the Israelites. Paul references this story, and again, if you're sitting here listening to somebody say, hey, a letter arrived from Paul, you're in this colony, you're in this small outpost of, of, of love of Jesus in the, in the city of Rome, and Paul's letter finally comes, and someone stands up and reads it, and, and you're sitting next to someone, and you're like, why is he using that language? And someone next to you maybe was a, a good, devout Jew and would say, well, this is what he's doing. He's actually referencing this larger story about how the Israelites were so ungrateful that they kept wanting more and more. God provided food for them every day, but they wanted more and more and more. And this is a thread we see in Paul's writing all the time of talking about this issue of more and referencing back to the Exodus story. Uh, if you have your Bibles, I believe it's on the screen as well, but 1 Corinthians 1, uh, beginning in verse 4, I always thank my God for you. This is Paul writing to a different church. I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge, God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Verse 7, Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you, and remember, he's talking to a group of people. This is easy in Scripture, right? How many of you have a tendency to read the Bible and you just think it's talking to you yourself? Almost never is that the case. These were, now, there's there's a personal element, but it's always written to a group of people that you all You all don't lack any spiritual gift. You have everything you need. You know the folks who have a deep sense of contentment with what they have. You know the way that they walk through life because it's different than you. You know that feeling, right? You know when you've come across somebody who's um, decided to live with less. It's hard enough when you ever feel the guilt when someone goes, oh, yeah, we we don't have TV. Part of you is like, how could you do that, right? Classic first world problem. you just like, oh my, I cannot fathom. Never mind the centuries of people who don't, never mind. Right? But we feel that for a lot of us, we feel that moment. I experienced that a lot because my wife and I decided to get rid of our TV. We Actually, we never even had one, um, which makes us better than all of you. Amen. Oh. I say that because whenever I bring that up, I actually have to bring it up kind of reluctantly because it immediately causes this visceral reaction for folks. Like, like oh, oh I, I couldn't, that's cool, good for you. Maybe I could think about that, you know, and they kind of, and there's nothing special. We just made some decisions. We realized how much it's hard for us to have any self-control with television. So we, you know, we have our Netflix account and we can watch things without ads. And we've made some decisions of why we do that because, um, you know, the propensity to come home is turn the TV on. And so when we explain that, it's interesting because people in that moment usually are like, yeah, my life's really cluttered. I was literally talking to someone last night about this. And the conversation led to that place of, yeah, how do I declutter? There's something about just recognizing I have everything I need. I don't need one more gadget. I don't need one more thing. I actually, simplifying would be really helpful. Now, Paul's not talking about simplifying your stuff here. But what, I, what he gets at with this Exodus story is that the first people, these Jewish people, and is describing this Exodus story, were given everything they needed and they wanted more. We grumble. We grumble and we, we, we complain and we argue and we stumble when, when we don't believe that God has given us everything we actually need. We stumble when we think we need more. We grumble when we think that God has shorted us. 
There are many of you who have had a death in the family, who have stories that are similar to Edison's, and you actually resent God. You believe that God has given you like an unfair rap. Some of you struggle with mental illness. Some of you have had hardships in your life, and it's just all blame. Like I, somewhere, you would never want to admit it, right, because you're sitting here in church. But some of you, just, you're, you're exhausted, and you don't have the, the, the sense the same sense that the, the first people, these Israelites, forgot that, that you lose track of the story, right? The story, the way we understand the gospel, the reading of scripture is that God made the world good, that God loves us enough to give us a choice of whether to say yes or say no to him. There's a mysterious element of God calling us, and yet we see right at the very beginning in Deuteronomy, you can choose life or not. So we see this ancient story going from God made everything so good. He loves us and wants to have a relationship. And so the opportunity or the chance for brokenness to enter the world and we make false choices. We, we choose a way outside of God all the time. And some of you have done that and, and you've hurt other folks. Sometimes other folks, they make choices too. We sometimes think we're immune from other people's poor decisions. We're told in scripture that even very biology and nature itself has in some way become corrupted, right? The whole earth is groaning. So if you're a Christian here, if you're not a Christian, you may not believe this story, but our understanding of the world actually is that it was made very good. The word to take part in renewing and restoring it, and Jesus has set that in motion. But if anybody should have a sober assessment and understand on some deep level why they have a mental illness, why dad died, why things are broken around me. In theory, if we trust our faith, actually we as Christians should have a really firm understanding. Yeah, that's the way things are. That is the reality of the broken choices that myself and others have made generation upon generation upon generation. It's funny, the more we study genetics and DNA, the more we study weather patterns and science, we actually learn more about the systemic nature of sin. That choices and choices are made that corrupt even things beyond sort of individual choices on a day-to-day basis. And so when we blame God, when we have this internal thing, we grumble and we complain because we think we've gotten a bad rap. All the while, we miss the opportunity in front of us to be aware of what God says he's doing, which is making all things new and turning all things together for his good. Broken, trashed, like the most, like the worst wreckage in your life. We're to wake up, God. Allow God to work this together for his good. God desires to renew. He gives us free will to make the choices that we make. And yet, God is putting it all back together. And then the beauty of the Christian story, which is what has been ca- like, been the, the lifeblood of, of slaves throughout generations, the lifeblood of those who are oppressed people, is that we hold on to the truth that God at the end will put it all back together. We're partnering with him now to do what God will ultimately do in a definitive way at the very end. This is the story of God. This is the biblical story. So when we, when we grumble, when we gongismos, when we make noise and argue, sometimes it... There's an internal blame of God, and, and we have to ask, do we see the world as God says that it is? If, if deep down we believe that God has not been good, we are missing the beauty and truth of the story that God is renewing all things. And that, as, again, as we as Christians should be very aware and very ready to receive the brokenness and hurt in the world. Another way is we grumble 
We make noise, we argue when we judge the future by the present. And we see this, and this is the part that's so cool. We see this in how Paul retells the Exodus story in this passage that we read. So uh, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Deuteronomy 32.5. You can Google it. It will also be on the screen. This is an account, again, after these first people have been delivered from slavery. They're out in the wilderness. And the writer now is reflecting on what has happened. And we, 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 uh, we see this. In talking about these people that God has rescued, they are corrupt and not his children. To their shame, they are a warped and crooked generation. You're seeing here what Paul is doing. Paul's taking this passage and actually saying something different. He's saying, look, do everything without grumbling and arguing so that you may become blameless and pure. And then he changes it. He says, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Paul flips it, reminding these people in Philippi of who they are. That you are children of God without fault because of what Jesus has done for you. That you've been rescued out of slavery, he says in Galatians. In uh, Corinthians, he says you're new creation. You are seated with Jesus. You're more than a conqueror. You're God's friend, chosen, beloved, forgiven, sealed, treasured. You are God's kids. He said, this is actually not who you are. In fact, the scripture writers seem to go to great lengths to remind us all the time of who we are in Jesus. It's funny, even though we do like a time of confession at the beginning of church, every once in a while I get kicked back of like, man, you should talk more about sin and hell. And all I say back to that is I just want to be in proportion to how the biblical writers talk about sin and hell and who we are in Jesus. I want to get that proportion right. And over and over and over in the New Testament, we are honest here about the fact that we are broken and sinners. But as we said in the beginning of the liturgy, our identity, if you're here and you're said yes to Jesus, is actually a child of God. That is your identity first and foremost. And so we lean into the finished work of Christ, not try to manage our idols and manage our sin every week. Make you feel really bad and go back and, yeah, I could go off on that. That's a separate sermon. <laughs> Paul says, look, you're actually not like the Jewish people. This is who you are. And that you might shine like stars in this generation, not actually be the warped and crooked generation that Paul describes. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky. You aren't like those people in the desert. Paul is essentially saying how the story went is not how the story has to go. How the story went is not how the story has to go. They may have missed the point, but you don't have to miss it. This is how the story went then, but it's not how the story has to go now. You are called and fueled by something different. Your father might have been an alcoholic, but you do not have to be. Your mother may have been relationally distant, but you do not have to be. Your parents' marriage might have ended in divorce, but it doesn't mean yours has to. Actually, you're not tied to your history. Believe me, it, we all know it affects us. We all know it informs decisions. 
But Paul is telling this church, you remember that Exodus story? Remember when people were like saved by the grace of God out of slavery? And then they just turned around, they forgot the story, they acted like they needed more, they grumbled, they complained, they lost the plot. You guys don't have to be like that. In fact, when you recognize who you are, you will shine like stars in a culture that constantly makes noise, that is constantly cynical, that grumbles and complains at every turn, and that is exhausting. It's exhausting. He said, you will be amazed, right? Some people struggle with, well, I don't, how do I talk to people about Jesus? Just start with living into the person you are and not complaining and arguing ever. Just start trying that. It's amazing. Like this text, this ancient 2,000-year-old text, some of you are like, why is this relevant at all to us? Try this. Try living in response to the good news and grace of God that he's provided everything you need and thus why would you complain or argue? Just try it. You will be amazed at how you will stick out like a sore thumb. Like the water cooler talk, oh my gosh. You will be the odd person out. Like why, why aren't you a cynical bastard? Like why aren't you as sarcastic as the rest? I mean, it, you, this might sound like a simple thing, but good Oh, yeah. You will shine like stars in the sky. It seems so over the top. Paul's pretty grounded. Look, you don't have to live the way they did. Your story is not their story. Your family's story is not your story. You you can actually live into the identity of who you are in Jesus, not who you are in your brokenness. I know some of you have parents that have made you fight and achieve and earn their worth, and you still... You're like, you got a job, you're married, you're like doing everything that they asked you to do and they still don't give you favor. They still don't show you love. They still offer cynicism. They're still hounding you. But that, you, you can actually turn around and love them. You don't have to complain or argue or be down by any of that because actually this is who you are now. This is who you are now. That addiction that your whole family has struggled with how the story went, Paul is saying, is not how the story has to go. You are children of God, and so shine like stars. Paul offers us an invitation to become more humble, to become more generous, to look at the difficult things in life as invitations to keep going, to be more aware of how broken the world is and see the Spirit of God at work in that. This is why he ends with, as you hold firmly to the word of life, and then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. The term run here is referring to sports, and in fact, how you kind of parse it out, um, he's, he's making sort of a marathon reference. Like, this is actually a journey. Like, this isn't a sprint. We grumble when we forget that life actually is a long journey, that life is a marathon. We grumble and complain when we realize, wait, I'm focused so much on just this moment and instead of looking at how God can redeem this brokenness, this year, this month, this week, to have a longer view of what's happening. So I want to return one last time to the Exodus story as we close. The big thing here that kind of looms over all of this that I'm sure I'm being a bit redundant at this point is just a lack of perspective. There's a lack of perspective. We miss the plot. We miss the fact of what God's doing. 
We're not grounded in the story. This is the Exodus syndrome. We need to see God's goodness and life as a gift and then embrace this reality of being people who are free to not grumble and complain. So the rabbis, um, in talking about the Exodus story, some of the ancient teachers would um, talk about this one interesting story, sort of a, a midrash on the Exodus, a, 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 a sort of expanded story, um, kind of helping to inform and get at the meaning of the Exodus story. And so they talk about how, I'm trying to think of a good way to do this. I'd love to illustrate this somehow. They basically talk about how when the uh, dial back your Charlton Heston, if you're not familiar again with the Exodus story, God's delivering them out of Egypt. And so we have this picture, right, of what? The sea, they're about to cross, and they're about to get captured because the, the, the Egyptian soldiers are right on their tail. And so let's, let's just imagine the two sides here. You guys are the waves that get pulled back. So <clears throat> we have this epic story of God parting the seas so that these Israelites can cross through the sea, come out on the other side, and be safe. Right? We all, all familiar with this story? And so there's this, there's this rabbinical story that described um, two Israelites in particular. And so um, they're, they're, they're freaked out. They're about to get captured. They see this unbelievably remarkable event where the waters part. And then um, they're like, oh, okay, well, we should go, right? And so they start to walk. And now where everybody else is looking up like, oh, my gosh, like that's a whale. You know, like <laughs> they're looking up at the walls. I don't know if they're, wh- they're not whales in the Red Sea, right? These walls of water, and they're just looking up as they're also moving relatively quickly with the Egyptian army behind them. But there are these two that are just like, ugh, like it's muddy, and there's like a goldfish flopping around, and like it's really cold, and they're just sort of complaining, like this epic moment, and here they are just focused in on on their feet and they're grumbling and they're complaining and 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 even in the wake of what God has done their feet are their eyes are so fixed on the ground that they fail to see the grace of the of the wall of water on either side of them and the first response in my mind at that at hearing the story is I would never be like that never And yet, I begin to trace back through my week. I trace back through the month or the year. And I go, how often am I so focused in on just my immediate needs? So focused in on how I'm feeling moment to moment. We're talking about the, the noise of the world. How focused in I am on the noise and brokenness of everything around. That I am just stuck staring at my muddy feet and missing the grace all around me. I grumble because I, I think that God hasn't provided everything I need. I grumble because, because I, I, I almost blame God for the mud on my shoes. I, I, I grumble and, and I moan. I stumble and I miss the plot because I'm not aware of the larger story of what God is doing around me. When people come to, to Jesus, like Edison being baptized earlier, 
there's a moment of waking up. You could describe it as sort of a moment of going, oh, shoot. <laughs> there's a moment of, of I've, the grace of God has been around me all the time, and I've just failed to notice it. So what we're going to do before we come and take communion is there's going to be a series of questions that are going to come up on the screen. And I want to encourage you, they're also in your bulletin. I want to encourage you just to, to take some time reflecting. Let's not just have a little bit of information and turn around and walk out. God does not care um, about just filling our heads with knowledge. In fact, he cares about what we do with this. How can we move away from being people who have our heads down in the mud, who grumble and moan and argue and are disconnected from that which is most true? And so we're going to spend a few minutes cycling through these questions. I'll come back up, welcome us into a time of communion. We'll sing a song and, uh, and be on our way. Um, but I also pray, because we, we got the water, you know, all sitting there. If there are any folks that you see Edison's story or you go, man, I feel like right now I'm like literally waking up to the grace of God. I actually want to follow Jesus. Um, I'm just going to be hanging out over there. And if you want to come and, and just talk with me about maybe being baptized, we've got some extra towels and, you know, what's a pair of wet jeans? It's already raining out. Um, and we'd love to, uh, to talk with you about that. For many of us, and probably some of the folks sitting next to you, the path of following Jesus have been one of the most exciting and beautiful things they've ever done. Of, of just saying yes to the love of God, yes to freedom, yes to an identity that isn't marked by what other people think, yes to the story now doesn't have to be the story that I was a part of before. So let's pray. Jesus, I, uh, I thank you that you're here. Thank you uh, for the way in which you uh, were told that you're kind of after each one of us, <laughs> that you love us, that you are the father that runs up the road, that you, you pursue, you embrace. And so I pray, Lord, that we would be a people that continue to wake up to your grace, to continue to wake up to who you are and what you have done for us and what you are doing through us. I pray just over this time that it would be meaningful to us. That people would have breakthroughs, not because of any, anything remotely clever I may have said, but because your word is living and active and powerful to wake us up. So in your name, Lord, we come before you.
could such a thing shine its light on me and make everything beautiful again. How could such a king shine his light on me and make everything beautiful again? Be all right. This is one of the more beautiful moments of our time together. Like baptism, it's a physical reminder of what God's done. Jesus dying on the cross for our sins, rising again, breaking himself open and pouring himself out for, for the forgiveness of our sins. We're told uh, that there's no greater love than someone who would lay down his life for his friends, never mind his enemies. And so we have the God of the universe actually showering his enemies with love for God so loved the world that he, he came and, and he revealed to us on the cross what love looked like and something mysterious happens and that our, our sort of sin and guilt are removed and, and we actually take on new identity and so we do this almost every week because Jesus says do this in remembrance of me and I like to think that Jesus would have added because you have a propensity to forget you got to do this in remembrance of the story. Like Paul's referencing the story. Remember what love is. Remember what this looks like. Remember what has been done in time and space to set you free. And so we come, if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, to take the bread and to dip it in the juice. As a reminder of Christ's body broken and his blood poured out for you. And as a reminder that we, as the body of Jesus, is one picture that we're given in the New Testament of we're actually called the body of Jesus, that we as a community are called to break ourselves open and pour ourselves out because of what Jesus has done for the healing of our, of our, uh, our homes, of our, of our streets, of our neighborhoods, of our world. So if you're here and you're a Christian, we want to welcome you to come forward. Um, for those who are on this half of the room, come up the middle aisle. Um, Take the bread and dip it in the wine and come around the side. And for those who are on the other side of the middle to head that way. And I still want to just leave the invitation open. If, if you're here and, and uh, you need help connecting the dots between what's happening in your heart with, uh, or you need help connecting the dots between what's ha happening in your heart to uh, where your head's actually at. You're like, I don't believe any of this. And yet God's doing something in me right now that I'm freaking out. I come and talk. Um, if you want to be baptized again, I'll be over in the corner. And for the rest of us, I pray that this time is one of remembering our salvation, remembering the cross and our baptism. So let me pray for this. Lord, thank you for this picture. And we thank you, Lord, for what you've done. And so as we sing, um, as we acknowledge uh, in taking the bread and wine, um, the beauty of your love, I pray that we would find ourselves transformed. In your name. <laughs>